0: This is going to be lesson number three in our study of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. We're looking at this from the approach of restoring God's people. And uh, I'll review the different leaders that we're talking about this quarter in just a moment. But I want to start with some people are really bored by this stuff and some people are fascinated by it. So I'm just going to spend a little bit of time on it. I happen to be one of the people that are fascinated by it. I want to kind of place these books we're looking at on a timeline. It can get a little confusing as you saw. We were talking the first six chapters about of Ezra about a time before Ezra had arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, Ezra finally comes on the scene in Ezra chapter 7, but a lot has been happening between Ezra ah. chapters 6. Bless you. Ezra chapter 6 and 7. There's about 58 years between those two chapters. And uh, here's what uh, the timeline looks like. I, I realize that you probably can't see that very well unless you're sitting really close to the front. But it might help you to, to look at something like this online or in your Bible, if you have a study Bible of some kind. Uh, we have been talking about the rebuilding of the temple under Zerubbabel. And that process began in about 536 B.C., And you'll remember they had some problems. Uh, They stalled out for several years, started building again in 520 and completed the temple in 516. Uh, Once the temple was completed, that was pretty much the end of Zerubbabel's influence there. He kind of disappears on the scene. And then between that time and the year that Ezra arrives, we have the whole story of Esther. This is why I wanted to bring this up now. The book of Esther fits between Ezra chapters 6 and 7. And so, Esther's dates are something like uh, 480. That's the year she was made queen. And Ezra makes the four-month journey from Babylon to Jerusalem in 458. And so, there's, you know, A good deal of time here between chapters 6 and 7 about 20 years between esther and the arrival of ezra so i maybe you find that interesting maybe not another thing that i'll be bringing up here are the names of the persian kings and we've already run into this in ezra chapter 4 where three of these guys were mentioned Uh, but at the beginning of ezra you had cyrus king of persia The next two on the list aren't mentioned in the Bible. Darius uh, is mentioned, and we've read about him. Uh, He also was uh, ruling during the end of the the time of Zerubbabel there, 521 to 486. The king who's called Ahasuerus in the book of Esther is Xerxes. His dates are 485 to 465. Uh, The next king after him... Is not mentioned in the Bible and then the king that was reigning over Persia in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah is Artaxerxes 464 to 424 so we've been talking about Cyrus and Darius with Ezra chapter 7 we're now in the time of Artaxerxes and if that's not confusing enough after we finish Nehemiah we're gonna back up to the time of Xerxes and he's not called Xerxes in the Bible he's called Ahasuerus so I'll be reminding you of this or making you sick with this depending on your level of interest in history. Uh, uh, It's important to figure these things out because then you can place the events in your mind and and see them unfold properly. Now, this is how we're studying it thematically. We're looking at Zerubbabel as the restoration of worship. That's Ezra chapters 1 through 6. Ezra, which we turn to tonight, the restoration of the law. Ezra 7 through 10. When we get to Nehemiah, we're talking about the restoration of the city. And the book of Esther is about the restoration of honor. So let's start our discussion of Ezra's leadership and the restoration of the law. And uh, we're going to talk about Ezra as the giver of the law. And uh, we'll say a few things about that in just a moment. I do want to talk about how this flows from Zerubbabel's role. Zerubbabel was was all about bringing worship back. He had the altar built, then the foundation of the temple, then the temple itself so that they could start burning offerings again and, and worshiping God and celebrating the feast as they were instructed to do in the law of Moses. And now Ezra comes in to establish the law. And some people see these two things as sitting on poles. Uh, they're opposites from one another. People think of worship as free expression, as something that doesn't need to be regulated or bound. And they see law as something that uh, binds and restricts. And, and they don't want law interfering with their worship. And so I think it'd be good as we move from worship to law to ask the question, what's the relationship between the two? Why did God have Ezra come in right behind the building of the temple and establish law, the law being the law of Moses, in Jerusalem once again. Well, it's like this. What is worship? Worship is cherishing, adoring, loving, praising. And law is related to worship in that it protects that which is cherished. Now, in this case, that which is cherished is God, and He doesn't need protecting so the law in this case with God is honoring that which is cherished. If you don't have a law, then you're then you're not going to be able to protect or honor the thing that that is cherished, that is loved. Take uh, speed limits, for example, or seatbelt laws. Why do they exist? To make our trips longer, to make us uncomfortable in our cars? No. They're there to protect the sanctity of life. We love our lives, And so the laws are there to protect what is cherished most, our lives. And so the law of Moses comes into Jerusalem, carried by Ezra, the giver of the law, to protect the worship of God, to make sure that God is honored in every way. Now, what qualified this man, Ezra, to do this work? That's what we're talking about tonight, and we're going to see it in two ways. First, we're going to look at Ezra's roles And then we're going to look at uh, his methods. Okay, so his roles, that's where we're going to start as we look at Ezra chapter 7. And there are three roles in particular that he plays. Now, the first one is he plays the role of priest. Let's start reading here Ezra 7. You know, see this long pedigree that that we're given of Ezra in verse 1. After this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia ezra the son of sariah the son of azariah son of hilkiah son of shalom son of zadok son of ahitub son of amariah son of azariah son of marioth son of zariah son of uzzi son of bukai son of Abishua, son of phinehas son of eleazar son of aaron the chief priest most of those names if not almost all of them you probably didn't recognize The lower you got down on the list, maybe the more familiar they became. Phineas, Eleazar, Aaron. Who is Aaron? Moses' brother, right? The high priest. He's called chief priest here. Same thing, high priest, chief priest. Why do you think this family tree of Ezra is presented here at the opening? The very first thing that is said about this man is that you can trace him all the way back to Aaron. Why is that important? You can only be a priest if you're a direct descendant of Aaron. That's right. Uh, some people confuse that with Levites. They say, well, the, if, if you're of the tribe of Levi, you can be a priest. Not necessarily. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. You not only had to be of the tribe of Levi, but you had to be a descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses. You had to come down through Aaron, Eleazar, Phineas, and so on. And so Ezra had the pedigree that certified him by the law of Moses to be a priest for God. Now, as a priest, he stood between God and the people as a mediator, and he offered sacrifices on behalf of the people to God so that the contamination of sin would not separate them from his holiness. And that... How it worked, you you had to have the Levitical priesthood, as we call it, descended from Aaron. In order for that to take place, it's very important that Ezra performed that role. Today in the church, all of God's people are priests, because all of God's people have been sanctified. We're called saints, which means God has not ordained a particular tribe or family to handle this business. But the church stands between God and the world, offering sacrifices on behalf of the world in hopes that the world will come to God through Jesus Christ, who is the high priest. We are a royal priesthood, First Peter chapter 2, verse nine. So we share something in common with Ezra here as we look at this first role that he played, a priest. But there's more, let's go on to this second role. He also played the role of a scribe. If you look at verse 6, it says that this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. So he was skilled in the law of Moses. That's what a scribe would be. He's kind of like a lawyer for religious statutes. Uh, Scribes interpreted the Word of God for the people and taught it to the people. They also copied it expertly to make sure that it was preserved. And throughout uh, this chapter, words like law, judgment, statutes appear 11 times, meaning that the law was very important in Ezra's role in leading the people. Now, the position of the scribe seems to have developed during captivity. Uh, You don't read about scribes before the Babylonian exile, And then afterwards, you start reading about them and you really see a lot of them in the time of Jesus, right? Unfortunately, they had become corrupted by Jesus' day and they didn't follow in the steps of Ezra. But he was a scribe who fulfilled the law and taught it as he should. So that was the second important role they played. The third one we will say... It's the chosen one because of the language at the end of verse 6, which says that the hand of the Lord his God was on him. That indicates that he was specially chosen for this role of giving the law to the people, reestablishing it, restoring it, to use the the language that we've been using. Uh, God had chosen him for that. And as you look through the Bible, you see God always chooses the right man or the right woman for the job. Just do a survey of that. Noah, he was the right person to preserve the human race through the flood. Job was the right person to be tested and to suffer and to show that humanity is capable of loving God for love itself and not just for the blessings that that God may shower upon him. Rahab was the right woman to hide the spies and send them out another way. Abraham was the right man to be the father of a nation that would become identified with faith and to bring the Messiah into the world. Joseph was the right man to carry his people to Egypt and preserve them from famine. Moses was the right man to deliver the people of Israel from Egyptian bondage. David was the right king to unite God's people into a powerful nation. Jeremiah was the right prophet to bring God's word to a disobedient people in a very dark time. Peter was the right man to lead the apostles uh, despite all of his flaws. He was the right person. Paul was the right missionary to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And Jesus was the only man who could die for our sins. He had to be the one because he was God and man. And as God, He could offer Himself, and as man, He could be the rightful substitute for humankind. No no one else can do that work of dying for our sins. He was chosen. Ezra was chosen. The hand of the Lord was on him. And I think it's important for all of us to understand that as God's people, we have a role to play. An important role. We're all members of the body. Paul uses this language in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, We may not, maybe we want to be a hand, but we're a foot. Maybe we want to be an eye, but we're an ear. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 18, that God has arranged us in the body as he chose. Now, what that means is we have special talents and abilities and opportunities that are unique to us. And instead of focusing on what others can do that we can't do, we should look at what God has given us, what makes us special, and use that talent, that opportunity for His glory. Where we are, we can serve Him. That's what Ezra did, and he did it against great odds. And so we're going to move now from his roles into his methods. And uh, there are four of these methods, I believe, in Ezra chapter seven. Most of them come from verse ten. Let's look at Ezra chapter seven, verse ten, where we get the first three methods that um, that Ezra used to be the scribe, the priest, and the chosen one. There, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. What's the first method there? The first method is study. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord. We've we've got to study our Bibles. The, The Word of God is the only way we can learn God's will for our lives. And Ezra studied because he set his heart to do it. I know a lot of us struggle with studying the Bible... But if we set our heart to do it, we'll do it. I think one of the things that we get confused about is what study is. Uh, Some of us think, you know, studying my Bible, I'll just randomly pick it up and thumb over to a passage and, and just see where my thumb lands and read a little while until I get tired or lose my focus. The difference between randomly perusing, the Word of God and studying it is a plan. Study is reading the Word of God in a systematic way. That's all it is. And so before you can study, you've got to get a plan. Now the great thing is the plan can be anything you want it to be. Now maybe there's a particular plan you need to get on for the circumstances of your life right now, but the plan can be whatever you need it to be. Here's a few examples. You can follow a Bible reading schedule. Every year we give a suggested reading schedule. It's not something that we say you necessarily just have to do. It's a suggested reading schedule that will take you through the whole Bible in a year. Uh, There are a lot of reading schedules and a lot of great things on the Internet now. It costs you nothing just to download one onto your phone and get reminders and notifications or just to look one up, try to follow one very easy thing to do. This is a good way to start. Or you could explore the Bible for answers to tough questions. I'm sure all of you have questions about very difficult, deep, complicated matters that you've always wondered about. And you'll ask your preacher, you'll ask a teacher, your parents, and maybe you've never been satisfied with the answer. Why don't you study it? And why don't you explore and see if you can figure it out? Uh, The the Word of God is accessible to everyone. You can learn. You can find answers. You can ask more questions. Learn to ask good questions, and you'll have a study plan. Here's another suggestion. Start a study group. Uh, The YouVersion app allows you to do this kind of thing. It has this social element to it. A lot of you use it and don't realize that. You can invite a friend to read along with you or to go through a study plan with you. Or you can get a group that meets once a week, once a month, uh, work through a, a, a class book or some kind of study together. You can have a lot of fun doing it and learn something too. It also keeps you accountable when you have a study group. Do memory work. I mean, this is one thing if, if you don't have the energy to think up tough questions and seek the answers to them and you, don't, you feel like that's above you, you can just memorize something. Uh, You can pick a hundred verses to memorize. Uh, You can pick ten. You can try to memorize a book of the Bible or a chapter that you love. But memory work is great because it seals the Word on your heart. and You carry it with you everywhere you go. Try to master a book of the Bible. You know, this quarter on Sunday mornings, we're studying Colossians in the auditorium, Galatians in uh, the back in the adult classes, We're studying Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther here on Wednesday nights. There's five good books that you could uh, study through the quarter in addition to what you're learning in classes and just know that thing backwards and forwards. Be able to outline it and tell somebody the basic contents, the key ideas, the key verses. Uh, There are all kinds of things that you can do. You can also, if you're going through a very difficult time, look for scriptures that bring you comfort and encouragement. The Psalms, of course, are a great place to turn, but there are many other places that you can go, and there are a lot of other study plans, but just understand this, if you just pick the Bible up every once in a while, or listen to it in your car every once in a while with no plan, you're not studying the Bible, you're, I guess it's better than nothing what you're doing, but it's not study, and what we need to do, 2 Timothy 2.15, is to study to show ourselves approved unto God. So that's what uh, Ezra did. It was very important for him. Uh, Some people don't understand how important the work of study is and how much effort it takes. And it it makes me think of Acts chapter 6. You remember the problem the church was dealing with in Acts chapter 6? There was a, a miscommunication or a neglect regarding the distribution of food to the widows. The Hellenistic widows in the church are being overlooked. And the apostles had to deal with it. But instead of taking it into their own hands, they delegated it to seven servants. They told the church to pick these men according to the qualifications they gave. And they said, we're going to give ourselves to the ministry of the Word and prayer. That was their priorities. The ministry of the Word and prayer. The apostles thought those two things... Things that we normally don't think of as work were so important and time-consuming that they could not be distracted by distributing food to people who were hungry. And there was was a serious uh, hunger problem there in the city of Jerusalem at that time, especially among the widows. The ministry of the word, do you know what the word ministry means? It comes from the word from which we get our term deacon. It has to do with service. And so they were serving the Word or serving the church as they studied the Word, and they felt that was the top priority. We don't give enough credit to the study of the Word, and we need to make that a high priority, because without the Word, there is no growth. And, of course, Ezra was an excellent student of the Word. I think this is a good place to point out his influence. Uh, We are not exactly sure how many volumes Ezra contributed to the Old Testament. Uh, it's a pretty safe assumption that he wrote the book of Ezra, the book bearing his name. He has also been suggested as the possible author for First and Second Chronicles, and uh, maybe Psalm 119, the longest chapter in all the Bible. So Ezra was a very important scribe, uh, inspired writer as well. Let's go to another method. Not only did he study, but he also practiced the word. Verse 10 again, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. What good is it if you only study and you don't do it? We have a word for that. It's called hypocrite. Someone who claims to be someone they're not. And Ezra, he was he He had integrity. He studied and he practiced what he studied, which is something that every teacher and preacher has to do. You go over to Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, and he reiterates this over and over again. Let's look at a few examples. First uh, Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 and following. Listen to what he says to Timothy there. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example... And then he gives him several ways in which he's supposed to be an example to the church there. This is a young man, uh, unmarried, maybe uh, newer to the faith than the people he's preaching to. But Paul says, set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So you see how he starts out and he says, teach And then he says, set an example. And now he's gone back. Teach, but read on. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. He not only is to be an example of those things, but he's to be an example of growth in those things. He wants people to see him growing. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Titus 2, verse 1. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Okay, he's got the teaching, but look at verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, what could Titus have done to bring people's disregard to himself? He could have been a hypocrite. maybe he didn't practice what he preached. And so it just doesn't work that way. If you're going to be a teacher, you have to practice what you're teaching. So Ezra did this. He studied... And then he practiced what he studied. And then the third method comes along. Then he taught. And I think this is the right order here. You study, you learn to practice what you study, and only then after you reach a certain level of maturity are you ready to teach and have that kind of influence over people. It's a very serious thing to teach the Word especially in a setting, you know, a church setting. Very serious thing. Remember what James said in James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers. Now that's, a lot of times we're trying to pile up as many teachers as we can. He says not many of you should be teachers. And then he gives an explanation why. You know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And why is that? Because you're in a position of influence. And people will believe what you say just by virtue of the fact that you're standing up in front of an audience. They, should they consult the Word of God? Should they be like the Bereans, of course? But are they always at the maturity level to do that and to contradict somebody who's not teaching the truth? No. Very few people have that kind of boldness. And so a teacher of God's Word is in an influential position because His words could influence somebody with eternal consequences. And so first you study and, and know the Word of God, then you practice it in your life, and then you've earned the right to teach it. I think Ezra had it in that order, and I think it's important that we, we see it in that order. Then the last thing here, execute. Uh, we go down to uh, chapter 7, verses 25 and 26 for this one. It's part of a letter sent by King Artaxerxes, who was still very much involved, the, the Persian government still very much involved in what was going on in Jerusalem. While they allowed Jerusalem to set up a government, that government was subordinate to Persia. And so, uh, Artaxerxes is writing this letter. And listen to what he says to Ezra in verses 25 and 26. You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So there's several punishments listed there, and it's not all just capital punishment. There could be banishment, confiscation of goods, imprisonment. All of it sounds pretty bad to me. Uh, But Ezra was given the authority to punish those who were disobedient, to see that everybody knew the law, and to make sure the law had teeth. You know, that the law was enforced. If you don't do that and show people there are consequences to breaking the law, then it just doesn't take effect. Now, we need to understand the distinction between what was going on in Jerusalem with Ezra and what he was establishing and the circumstances in which we now live. In Ezra's day, the law of Moses was the civil law as well. Is the law of the land and the law of God all in one. It was essentially a theocracy. And uh, so that kind of power that he's given by a governmental ruler like Artaxerxes is different from what we see in the church today. The church is not supposed to set up laws of the land because our kingdom is not of this world. Jesus established a spiritual kingdom. And... Uh, we're taught in Romans 13 and other places that God ordained the government of the land uh, to set law and order. And then the church is to be governed by a higher law. And when those laws come into conflict, of course, we have the standard of Acts 529, we must obey God rather than man. But The church has its set of higher laws that we live out in our own community, in the spiritual kingdom. And... Executing those laws amounts to what we call church discipline. There's a lot in the Bible about church discipline. I think it gets misunderstood a lot. I think that um, a lot of churches just think it it can't be practiced anymore. And that other churches think they're practicing it when they're really not. I think one of the things that we struggle with today is... uh, As we'll see in a moment, um, it's not just withdrawing fellowship. A lot of people think church discipline, that's where you excommunicate somebody. Well, it's not excommunication like in the Roman Catholic Church. And it's not just withdrawing fellowship from somebody. It's so much more than that. And really, the withdrawal of fellowship is a last resort. And withdrawing fellowship is more than sending somebody a letter in the mail that hasn't darkened the doors of your church building in three years. Uh, when you get to that point, you can't practice church discipline. You can't, you can't um, pull that nuclear option, if you want to call it there, that at the end, if there's no fellowship to begin with. And so it's very important that we build a community of people who love one another and care about one another if we're going to have church discipline amongst us. And that goes for all the steps of church discipline. Let's look at them as uh, Jesus laid them out in Matthew 18. Basically, he gives this order. He says, first of all, if your brother sins, the first step is to go to him in private and address the situation. Now, I haven't tested this. I don't have a science on this or research, but I believe that nine times out of ten, maybe more than that, this will take care of the problem. Again, there has to be a relationship there for, for it to work. But if somebody you really respect comes to you and says, with pure motives, Listen. I want to talk to you about what you're doing, what you're saying, what your attitude here, the choices that you're making. I'm concerned for your soul. I want you to think about this. So study with me. And pray with me about this. Nine times out of ten, that takes care of the problem. But if it doesn't, Jesus says, take two or three others with you. If that doesn't work, bring it out to the, the whole church. Tell the church about it. Get the whole group involved in trying to bring this person back. And then if that doesn't work... Jesus goes on to say withdraw fellowship from him in hopes that that action will bring him back to repentance so that he can enjoy the fellowship of the church again. Now, moving through this really quickly, but I want you to see that in every case where church discipline is discussed, it's not discussed in terms of excommunication. It's the execution of the law in hopes of saving the soul. So in Matthew 18, 15, the goal is to gain your brother. In 1 Corinthians 5.5, the goal is that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The goal in Galatians 6.1 is expressed, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The goal in 2 Thessalonians 3.12, encourage him in the Lord. Uh, The goal in James 5.20 is to save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So it's not to get the troublemaker out. I, I realize that Paul talks about leaven and how little leaven leavens the whole lump. So it is... To protect the the church but it's also to protect the soul of the one that we're concerned about so whenever we apply the idea of executing the law it's different from what we see in Ezra's life it's not a governmental action it's a community action the whole whole church is behind it another thing we mistake is we think it's the elders work you know the elders need to discipline that guy But when you read what Jesus is saying there, Matthew 18, the whole church is involved. The one who has the problem with the other, that person starts out trying to take care of it himself or herself before bringing it up to the elders. And maybe it doesn't get to the elders until it comes to the point where the whole church needs to get involved. And then maybe the elders lead the process at that point. But it's all about us trying to help one another go to heaven. In order to do that, we've got to respect the law of God. Why? This comes back full circle to what we're talking about in the relationship between worship and the law. The law protects what is cherished. And if we cherish God, if we love God and adore Him and praise Him and want to worship Him, then we respect the law which honors Him. It teaches us how He wants to be loved. This is how Ezra began his work. The giver of the law. We're introduced to him here. And we're going to see his, um, his uh, highs and lows as we go through the next several weeks and study his role throughout the rest of the book of Ezra. That's all my time. Appreciate your attention tonight.